0: This is Galatians 4, 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain.
1: So if you have your Bibles with you, you're going to want to open them to uh, Galatians chapter 4. And also, maybe if you have a finger, uh, spare one, or I guess if you have an app, it's going to be really easy. We're going to be also heading out to Exodus, second book of the Bible at some point. So, But we'll start in Galatians chapter 4. Um, I should have said good morning. Good morning. It's really good to be with you. Uh, I, I want to pray before we dive into this. Uh, this Today, this is a, an incredible passage. We're really just going to deal with verses um, 8 to 11, four verses. So I asked Leanne to read the beginning because of context. It's been a few weeks since we've been in it. So Uh, lots to do in four verses. It's pretty awesome. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this opportunity to be here. Uh, Lord, as we prayed earlier, this is not out of obligation. Uh, We get to be here today, but also we need to be here. Uh, Father, we need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we need you to touch our hearts and speak to us. Holy Spirit, I I need you this morning to help me to to communicate your word um, um, effectively um, from your heart and in your will. And so we pray today as we look at these things, we pray as we look at 2,000-year-old uh, writing uh, that we see it fresh, that we see it as you speaking then, but you speaking today. So, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would be with us and bless us in this time. And I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Um, as I mentioned, the, the four verses, uh, they, are, they are pregnant verses. They are deep uh, they are extremely wide. Um, uh, many commentators, if you read, uh, as I do, um, I usually look at a passage, pray about it, read it again and again and again, and try to figure out mostly on, on my own, from context and through the Holy Spirit, what's going on, and get a pretty good idea. And then you go to the commentaries and you see what they have to say, just to verify and confirm, and also uh, get some good um, applications, illustrations, and ideas from them, which is great. But when you look at a passage like this, there's... there's there, there's some confusion, there's, there, there's enough uh, uh, work by the com- uh, commentators where th- it's not like they're divided or anything, but th- they, th- there's an unsettledness about this because it sounds very simple, but really how do we understand it in that day and also apply it to this day? And especially with regards to those words, the worthless elementary principles of the world. I mean, it's easy to say those words, but wh- what does that actually mean? And uh, so there's some misapplications over the, over the years that people have taken from this passage, and so I'm hoping we can see it rightly today. So let's remember what's going on in this letter. Uh, the Galatians are primarily Gentiles, meaning uh, men and women who've come out, come out of a pagan culture. And by the way, if you're here today and you were not raised Jewish, you're a Gentile. We're, we're the same. So this is who Paul is writing to. They've been saved out of this pagan culture. And, and Paul's writing to them, as you know, because um, Jewish men have come down from Jerusalem, men who have been termed Judaizers. And, and they're, uh, they're actually contradicting Paul's teachings, particularly the teaching of the gospel that Paul had given to the Galatians that was actually the result of the planting of the church, was hearing that gospel. And these pagans came out of paganism and became Christians, and these Judaizers are coming down and saying, Paul didn't have the full gospel. He didn't have it. He, he, it was kind of easy believism what he was preaching and teaching to you. And you know, we want to make sure that you're good Christians, you're solid Christians. And you know what you need? You need to be Jews first. You need to practice the law and the prophets and, and all the customs and the ceremonial customs of the Jewish faith, and in particular, Judaism. And so Paul's basically saying in this part of this letter, he's saying, guys, And gals, if you do that, if you do that, you're putting yourselves back into slavery, back into bondage. Don't do that. And so we must look at three things today. We must must really ask ourselves three questions today. And this is from your outline. If you don't have one of them, they're up front here. You should grab one and take some notes. But we're going to look at it this way in three questions, really. Who are these small g gods who are not gods? that's number one. Number two, how do they enslave us? And number three, how can we be truly free? Perpetually and truly free from these small g gods. So number one, who are these gods? And who are not gods? Let me reread verses eight and nine one more time. Formally, Paul says, so in the past, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by him, I love the way Paul kind of catches himself there, um, even though he's trying to make the first point, but he's also, listen, the point is, it's God knew you. (laughs) It's not that you know God, because you weren't seeking him. How can you then turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you, look at this, want to be once more? So so Paul's basically taking them back to the life that they used to live, right? And and he's saying that when when, when you formerly were living, before you heard the gospel, you did capital N O T, not know Capital G God. You didn't know him. You had no idea who he was, you had no relationship with him, you completely didn't, You missed him, you didn't know him. The phrase that's used here is interesting, at the last part of verse 9 is very similar to what we saw in chapter 1, verse 11, right, when he said, I'm astonished that you're turning from a gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to another gospel that's not a gospel. The Greek there is hard to translate again because it's really to, to the, another gospel, Not. That's all you see in the Greek is another gospel, not. And it's the same thing here. It's like he's, he's saying, those things that you were enslaved to before you came to know God, not. <laughs> God's small g, not. and so That's the intimation. That's what he's saying to them. So uh, with that background, let me, let me focus on these words, because this is the most important part that can be misunderstood, but we'll, when we apply it to the, the words today, we'll really, I think, learn something important about this. It's these words, elementary principles of the world. And we already heard them. That's why I wanted the verses re-read again. In verse 3 of chapter 4, where it said this. He said, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So he's even speaking of himself as a Jewish man, that even we, when we were children, were enslaved to these elementary principles of the world. So when we put that together, those two verses, 3 and 8 and 9, we, we have to ask ourselves, what is he getting at? Who, who is he talking about? We, we need to understand who these gods are and what he's talking about for this to make any sense. So you notice that back in verse 9 here, he adds another adjective to describe them. They're not just worthless, but they're weak. Oh, they're, they're weak, but they are powerful in some respects. So, so what's he getting at? Well, we need another Greek lesson. We need another Greek lesson uh, here because it's an unusual word that's very hard to translate, and this is where the translators have all the problems. Some of you probably have different versions here today, which would be good if you were to refer to them. I'll give you some examples of how the translators have tried to handle these two Greek words that I'm going to give you in a second. The NIV says, weak and miserable forces. So that's their translation. Um, The New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, says weak and beggarly elemental spirits. (laughs) What does that mean? And then, of course, there's the good old King James Version, the weak and beggarly elements. It should be elementets. And then, of course, there's the Greek, which is crazy, because the the Greek is this, "stoiachia kosmu. Say that three times fast, okay? "Stoiachia kosmu, which is literally translated this way. ABCs of the cosmos. That's the way that is actually literally translated from the Greek words, but the translators are trying to put it in such a way that we will understand this better, apparently. So now this is where the, it's possible to misinterpret uh, the point that Paul is making here. Some commentators have taken verse 3 out of chapter 4 and said, okay, it's, it's basically this. This is what this means. Uh, if when you were children and your ABCs were were the elements of the Jewish faith, uh, of the law and the prophets. Now in Christ, in the gospel, you you have moved to a more advanced religion. If taken that way, we could conclude that Paul is saying, don't go back to the ABC religion, right? Don't go back to that older ABC kindergarten religion. Now that you've moved on to the graduate level, Christianity, you know, Jesus and the gospel and salvation by grace alone and, and and by faith alone in Jesus, don't go back to that. Well, that again, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, is kind of what some people are saying today about the teachings of Paul, that they were merely cultural, that back in that day when he wrote with those words that were mostly masculine, or when he spoke about male and female identities and marriage and and that kind of patriarchal language, well that's that's old school, That's, that was the early church, that was the beginnings, and that was the ABC religion of that day, and we are much more enlightened, much more moved on from that, and, and therefore, we want to move on from that. Well, that would be an interesting application and insight into that, but it's not what it's getting at. So many applications can and have been made based on this understanding, but there are problems with that. I want to highlight one for you that should be really obvious, but there's a really big problem with that. Uh, Paul doesn't say, go back to a more weak, miserable, worthless, or beggarly form of religion. I mean, think about it. The Apostle Paul, Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees, a proud Jew, a man even who today uh, uh, admires and still holds up the law and the prophets of God. Imagine him saying that about his previous religion, about all of God's word and law and prophets of the Old Testament, Paul would never say that, about God's plan and promises through Abraham and, and his, the, Mo, the law of Moses. He would never say that about the previous religion. What he is saying is this. Don't go back to the weak, miserable, worthless, and beggarly principles of the universe. Now, that's really different. That's quite different. But again, what does it mean? So we ask this, what does it mean? Who are these non-gods? Well, it doesn't take much study to go back into the culture of that day and realize that the people that were hearing this, the Gentile believers in Galatia, even the Judaizers were there hearing this letter read, they would know in an instant what Paul was getting at they would know exactly what he was getting at. He was speaking specifically about their pagan gods, their whole system of pagan gods. They would have known he was not talking about religion, certainly not the religion of the Jewish people, or any religion for that matter, because there was, they were a pagan group. They believed that behind, listen, every element, every element, as an example, was a god. And so, for example, there was a sun god. There was a water god, an earth god, a wind god, a fire god. There were gods behind all these things, and they would give and sacrifice and worship these gods. Their way of life was marked out by doing whatever was necessary to appease these elemental gods so that their life would go well. And this they completely understood. So when Paul starts talking this this stoichia kosmu, they get this. They understand it, and they understand it in this way. For them, behind everything in their world. We don't see it quite the same today. I'm going to show you how it actually applies to us today. But in in their day, they, they, they thought everything. They were quite superstitious. Everything was a deity. Behind everything, there was some spirit, good or evil, and that there was a way to appease that spirit. There was, for example, Bacchus, the god of wine, and uh, spiritual euphoria was kind of a combined god. This god, Bacchus, and of course there was Aphrodite, the god of sex, who was the perfect dance partner for Bacchus. Right? I mean, the the two of them would go together quite well. But they—they were two very famous, and and particularly in Galatia in that day, in the Greek uh, world of Roman uh, -Roman Greco-Roman world of that day, they were very popular gods. So here's an interesting aspect of that type of worldview. Everyone did have their own God. Every home that you would walk into, every um, peasant home, middle class, upper class, uh, elite, leader home, uh, regal home, had shrines to their gods. And everyone, they had, shrines, they had shrines to their favorite gods in their homes. These were the stoia kia, the weak and worthless spirits behind all these non gods. And everyone had their gods, and everyone would sacrifice and pray to their gods, hoping to be blessed by them, hoping to be approved by them, as they showed their devotion to them. Every area of life, not just the elemental, earth, wind, and fire, but also money, finances, agriculture, marketplace, you name it, there was no shortage of gods. So that's who these gods who are not gods are. That's who they were in that day. So we move on to number two: How did they enslave them, and how did they enslave us today? When the Bible speaks about paganism, this is it. This is exactly what it's speaking about. And again, what Paul is getting at here is that if this is what Stoiaa Cosmu is, and this is what he's pleading with the Galatians not to turn back to, well then we have to again ask, what's he really saying? Well, there's, there's one word that, that you would hear throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and the New, and you all know this word, and it's one word that when, when, when you put it out there, it encapsulates everything that we've just been talking about, about these gods who are not gods and this, this paganism, and it would be the word what? It's idolatry. It's the worship of idols. It's idolatry. And so Paul is making a very clear case. Two things, basically. A, everyone is worshiping something in that day and today. Everyone has their gods that are not gods at all. B, you're either worshiping one of these non-gods or you're worshiping the one true God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point. And so here's a big news flash. I'm sure most of you know this, but maybe some of us don't. There are no other gods. There there, there are no other gods. There's no other gods out there. The Hindus believe in 350 million gods. No. There are no other gods competing with the capital G God who exists. Here's the, the, the spiritual realm that exists in our world today there is God, capital G. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is how He reveals Himself to us and to the world. There are angels who are in heaven and glorifying God every day. And then there are fallen angels who are demons. And then there's us. And, and friends, that is it. And, and even for Christians, I think sometimes we're, you know, when we hear of other religions, and I, I see it debated on Facebook quite often, but but there's articles about, well, is the God of the Muslim the same as the God of the Christian? Is Allah the same God is Jesus Christ. No. <laughs> there is one God. There are no other gods. That's pretty important as a takeaway. So a big takeaway for you and I today is that this means that anything can be a deity. Anything can be a God, an idol. And listen, this is the hard part for us today, but it actually should be the good part because it leads to a very healthy conclusion. Tim Keller has a great phrase for this. I love it. You and I are nothing but idol factories. (laughs) And we don't even know it. We don't even realize it. But we are idol factories. We make idols out of virtually everything. Our culture helps us do that. His definition of an idol is is actually my favorite. I've quoted it before, but I'm going to put it on screen for you one more time. It is this. An idol is this. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything more important to you than God. God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly like worth living. Anybody got any gods? Anybody? I've counsel people at various times, and usually in a counseling situation, it's, you, you, you can tell, you don't want to ask it, but there, there's something, besides an idol behind every problem and issue in our lives and in our culture today, there's also an issue of fear of loss that leads to depression. It's an idol. It's central. If we lose that, my life wouldn't be worth living. If I, if I cannot have this, or attain this, life would hardly be like living. So it's a serious subject. And so we make idols out of all kinds of things. Listen to me. We make idols out of those things that we love. We make, we make idols out of husbands, out of wives, out of children, out of grandchildren, out of our nuclear family, and of course things like owning a home, getting a bigger home. <laughs> um, of course we make an idol out of sex. Our culture is... Obsessed with the idol of Aphrodite. It's obsessed with it. Money, craft, beer. I just thought I'd throw that one in there for everybody's sake. I wasn't pointing to the side of the room by, by the I wasn't. It just my right arm came up, okay? Just so you know, we, we, the ocean, the mountains, the environment, anything can be made into an idol idol, and become something that we worship and bow down to. So my question is, what is your favorite idol? This is one today the best thing you could do in application in my opinion is allow the holy spirit to point out to you what your biggest idol is. And as you're going to see in conclusion today it's important that you identify your biggest idol. So what is it? You have one. Let me give you a couple of suggestions for how you can find it. Have a look at your bank statement or for those of you that are savvy, your online bank statement, right? Look at where your money is going. Oh, 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 the money that you have in excess of the money that you need. But even the money that you need, where's it going? The largest chunk of it. Here's a good question that will lead you to identifying your idol as well. What's keeping you up at night? Think about that. What's keeping you up at night? When we when we uh, mentor and coach each other as church planters and pastors, one of the first questions my mentor, my coach will ask me, besides how you doing, which is always a terrible question. I'm doing terrible. No, whatever. But it's usually what's keeping you up at night? That will usually come up at some point in time. It's an important question. What's key, what are you losing sleep over? I can almost guarantee you, almost not perfectly, but almost guarantee you that what is keeping you up at night and causing you to lose sleep—that there is an idol behind it. And hear me when I say this: idols aren't just material and figment uh, material things and figments of our imagination. They can involve demons and spirits that are behind them, not other gods, but demonic forces that are behind them. So Paul's ultimate conclusion and statement here in this letter is that the only alternative to the one true God and the gospel is idolatry. It's the it's the only alternative. Another way of looking at that is to understand in in, in reality, we are all believers hear this. This is important. We're all believers in something, right? In reality, we all have our religion, and we all worship at some altar or another. And and let me push this even further and deeper, because this is crazy when you think about it. Either we worship the one true God, capital G, or we will be slaves to some God that is not a God at all. So in that way, there is no such thing. Listen, we get all amped up about this as Christians, right? But there's no such thing as an agnostic or an atheist, or a secular humanist in our world. Everybody's worshiping something. And hear me when I say this, everybody's idol is going to let them down. They're going to crash and burn on that. So let me have a look with me, uh, you have a look with me, at the foundational truth behind all of this, of what Paul is saying. Turn to Exodus chapter 20, if you have your Bibles with you. And, and there you're going to find in Exodus chapter 20. Actually, I need to do this because I only have certain uh, verses on screen. And I, I, did, I should have put the first part on. I've got to read it to you because, again, the context. When Paul's saying this here in this letter to the Galatians, he's thinking about this. He's thinking about the law. Now, we call this, this is the thing, right? Well, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. That's a serious misstatement, actually, if taken out of context. Chapter 20 begins with these words. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of, look at this, the house of slavery. That's actually how that begins. So it's about slavery. It's about bondage. Is the reason why God is giving these ten... They're not... They become part of the law and the prophets, but they're actually commandments for us. And so verses 3 to 5a say this. The first two commandments are, you shall have have no other gods before you. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God you notice that even the elements are mentioned here. It's like God knows in advance that we're going to have these elemental principles of the cosmos that we're going to bow down to, and we're going to worship instead of him. And so here what we have is the Ten Commandments, right? Now listen, we already saw in this letter that Paul has said that the law was given to us for good reasons. The law was given to us, first of all, so that we would know what sin is right so we'd be able to actually identify go oh, yeah that if i do that that means i've sinned against god and my relationship with god is broken but not just my relationship with god i'm broken when i do these things and it was also to be a guardian like a like a, a, a like a nanny until we we come to faith in christ right but again we have this idea in our culture christian culture in the world today and that is that well we're under grace oh thank goodness the law doesn't apply to me anymore The main reason why God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel and to you and I here today was for our flourishing. It was so that we could have a good life. That's why he gave us the Ten Commandments, so that we would have a good life and a good relationship with him. And so it was for our flourishing. And so let me ask you this. What do we have in these first two commandments? No other gods. It's all about idolatry it 's either me or you have other gods. you are worshiping idols don 't do that and so the first two commandments are really about a problem that we all have now. Some of you may remember our series from last summer in First John writing near the end of his life. This is an amazing letter. He's writing this like he's about 90 years old. It's actually like near the end of the, uh, the actual uh, life of the apostles. He's the last one living, actually, and he's writing this. We went through the whole 1 John. It was amazing. Great, great book about walking in the light, walking in, in, in love, and walking in relationship with God. But then he ends the letter. It's remarkable. I saw this. And I, I couldn't believe it. I had to put it up for you. He says this. He, this is his last phrase in the letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, if you read the letter, he doesn't mention idols anywhere else in this letter. But he does, right at the very end, he mentions this word, idols. And so the question has to be, again, what is John doing? Why would he do that? Well, again, his, his, his call to the people in that day was, guys, walk in the light, which means living a holy and upright life. Some of the Christians were falling back into Sin. <laughs> and, and, and just, it's covered by grace. It's covered by grace. It's okay. You know, God knows. He loves me. It's all right. It's all done. Uh, suffered at the cross, done. And he's, re- listen, guys, you need to walk in the light, which means li- living a holy and upright life. Walk in love, which means being a loving person um, towards particularly your other brothers and sisters in Christ, but really to everyone in your life. And then walk with God, which means having an intimate relationship, God. Listen, when you fail to do any of these, John was getting at this point. The problem is always this, idolatry. And so let's go back to the top ten list, as I like to call it, the Ten Commandments, uh, for a minute, and let me ask you this. When you think of Numbers 3 through 10, right? Keep the Sabbath, thou shalt not murder, you know, lie, steal, covet, all those things. When you think of 3 through 10, what relationship do you think they have with the first two commandments, well, when you think about it this way, think about it this way. When you and I fail to keep any of those commandments between 3 and 10, isn't it really, come on, honestly, because we've already broken 1 and 2? We've already abandoned 1 and 2? We, we, we are giving ourselves over to idols rather than to God? I think it is. I think it is. With John, Paul, and the whole Bible, for that matter, what they're saying is that anytime you and I fail to live like Jesus fail to be the new creations in Christ that we are saved to be, actually, it's because of idolatry. And so when you fail to be honest, when you fail to be loving, when you fail to be generous with your money, right? when you fail to be faithful, it's because you are abandoning the truth of the gospel and going back to the elementary principles of the cosmos. You're making your slaves, Paul is saying, again to these things. So let me, let, me, let me go real deep on this for a second, because it's important. Ask yourself this. Why do I lie? Why do I get so angry with someone that I'm actually sinning because I'm, it's the same as murder in Jesus' eyes? Why am I hating someone? Well, why do I covet someone else's husband, wife, materials, possessions, house, Pinterest account? Right? Why do I brag about myself? Why do I rob God? Why do I steal from others? Why don't I keep the Sabbath? Oh, we're no longer under the law. Why? Because of idolatry. You and I are capable and continually going about making something else more important than God. So let, let me finish with point number one this way. How did they enslave us? By looking at this verse from Luke chapter 12. This will, this will, I think, be helpful. Jesus said these words in Luke chapter 12. You've got to remember there's a, 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 a young brother that comes along and says, hey, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Now, he's a young guy, and he's like, he wants his money now so he can go and live his life, and he, he wants Jesus to do him a favor, right? And, and Jesus is not going to have anything to do with that, and so Jesus' response to him, to him directly, but also as his disciples are watching, is this. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Now covetousness, where does that come from? Which of the top 10 is that one? Number 10. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so he's warning them about covetousness. This this is preparing his disciples, the 12 in particular, for the ministry that's ahead of them. And, And he's saying, guys, don't give yourselves to covetousness. This is the New Testament, and it's Jesus preaching and teaching this, right? The Greek word for covetousness is awesome. Uh, It's actually a word that you know because of its opposite. The opposite of the Greek word is anorexia, and you all know what that is, right? It's a a disease that uh, men and women have, and and it's uh, it's because they have less than enough weight, right? Pleonexia, the Greek word that's used here for covetousness, covetousness, easy for me to say, means more than enough. And so what Jesus is warning them about is, guys, don't desire. Be careful when you desire more than enough. And so this is the key, I think. And it's the key way that demons behind every worthless and elemental God uh, that is not a God are leading you and I to enslave ourselves to an idol instead of God. How? How do they do that? Well, they do that by taking all the good things that God has given to us for our flourishing and making us desire more than enough of good things. Example. Is sex a good thing? There's a PG-13 audience, isn't it? Is sex a good thing? It is. It was given by us from God to flourish and to enjoy. It is a good thing. And so what do we do? In our culture today, what are we capable of doing, all of us? Making it into an idol by wanting more than enough of it. Hello, pornography? You know, there's another word that's used a lot in the New Testament. It's the word lust, right? And whenever we hear that today, of course, we know that lust is not love. And when we hear that, we're always like, well, lust means obviously wanting a bad thing. Right? No. No, actually, the Greek word in the New Testament that's used many, many, many times actually means uh, it means an over-desire, a covetous desire for something good. And so we've taken sex and we've turned it into something. So, so let me ask you again: What about this? Are recreational sport and ex- recreation, pardon me, sport and exercise good? Yeah, <laughs> they're they're awesome, but when they become something that you have an over-desire for uh, or something you must have or life is just not good enough for you, um, when they replace your desire for God and for his church, they can become an idol. Same goes for sex, money, material possessions, health, your body, your beauty, kids, spouses, and here's the other thing about these idols, which in our culture today, because we have so much choice, is that once one idol is no longer giving you the, the buzz, no longer giving you, you know, making you wake up in the morning and go, yeah, can't wait to get, go out there and you know, seize the day, carpe diem, there's another idol. And as you go through life and you get a little older, trust me, you, you need new idols. Or it seems to be that we think that. It's, it's insidious, really, when you think about it. And the problem is, of course, at the end of the day, with all these idols, is we're believing a lie. We're believing a lie that the idol can satisfy our needs more than God himself. They can't. They will fail us. In fact, they will crush us. And so that brings us to point number three, which is the good news. How can we be free? Honestly, how can we be free? So first, let me ask another question. What is the typical answer that most of us give to all of the whys that I've been asking, Right? Why do I not do what I should do as a Christian? I mean, the Apostle Paul himself, in Romans chapter 5, if you go read it, I think it's Romans 5, he asks, what I would do, I do not do, and what I would not do, I do, and he's asking this question over and over again, why do I do what I shouldn't do, and why don't I do what I should do? Well, the answer to all the whys, basically, is most of us will will come up with something lame like this, and I used to hear this a lot in, in the church early on in my Christianity. Well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I just want to be honest with you, I really dislike that platitude. I, I just dislike. Even in the, in the day when I first heard it, I was like, these were really godly people, right? Well, I'm just a sinner, Saved by grace. I'm going to be blunt. It's a cop-out. That's a cop-out, right? It's, it's, I think it's equally a cop-out. Well, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, you know? Like, that's a a caveat that you can throw out. Anytime someone is talking to you about sin in your life or your your unwillingness to give financially or whatever, it might be, well, we're no longer under the law. You know, like... Also probably highlights an idol in our lives as well. It's a cop-out. It's a total cop-out. It's like saying, there's nothing I can do. I'm helpless in this situation. Or worse, people saying something like, well, the devil made me do it." it. It sounds so weak, doesn't it? It sounds like, well... I think most of us behave that way. Even if we don't say those things, we kind of behave that way. The Gospels, listen, and all of the New Testament teach us the opposite. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. If you read the letters to the, most of the churches, it doesn't start off with to the sinners saved by grace in Ephesus. It says to the who? The saints in Christ. Oh, somebody smile, please. That's who it's written to, right? Listen, you guys know all this. It's about our standing and our position, right? But then we have our state and our practice, and we still sin, and and so we we get lost in this. And so what do we do? Well, obviously, the Christian life is supposed to be a life where we more and more and more and more become like Jesus Christ, Christ Christ-likeness. There's hope. That's the direction we're supposed to be moving. And so one of the reasons why so many Christians, I think, stagnate and fail to grow is because of a poor understanding of the Christian's relationship with faith alone in Christ, with grace, and our obligation as Christians to the moral laws of God. There's one more question, obviously, still hanging out for us. Well, okay, how? Okay, this, all, this might make, be making sense to many of you, but you're still going, well, okay, how? How do I do this? How do I live this life where I'm, I'm pursuing holiness and righteousness and I'm looking at the commands of God as good for me and I want to keep them and I want to start with those first two and I want to have no other idols before me but him? How do I do this? How do I live like a person who knows daily that they are fully accepted and fully approved by God and yet they still sin? How do I grow my Christ? Well, Paul's already shown us this. In the same chapter, it's amazing. In verses four and five, he said this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. These two verses tell us how our adoption was secured. First, God sent Jesus to save us from the penalty of of sin, which is the penalty of the law, which convicts us that we're sinners. But he doesn't leave us as orphans, thank goodness. Jesus and the Father then, in verse 6, says this, and because you are sons, because you are now my sons, excuse me, and daughters... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit has been sent to us. If you're in Christ here today, you've got to know that, that at some point you received the Holy Spirit. You must have sensed that, that He has come to you. He's been given to us so that we can experience our adoption in this day and age today, our very position in Christ. And the rest of this letter, the beauty of this letter, which now turns from this point, the rest of this letter is all about how we can be led and and how we can walk in the Spirit, how we can receive the fruits of the Spirit as a result of how we truly live out our freedom in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so my question for everyone here today is important question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Listen, if you've received the Holy Spirit, you want to keep the commandments of God. You get up every day, and and it's not like you beat yourself over the head and say, I'm a terrible person, I'm a terrible person, I'm a terrible person. No. It's like, my sins are forgiven, but today, I want to tell the truth. I want to tell the truth constantly, all the time. I want to think of others more highly than myself. I want to love others the way that I'm supposed to. And so do you look to him for your guidance every day in your life, and in every area? Listen, when and if you do, you will find one thing will become really, really clear. Your idols will lose their power over you. If you turn to the Holy Spirit each morning through the power of God's word, and next week we're going to see that Paul's now going to take the Galatians to, you want to know where you're going to find this power? It's the word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The, The idols in your life will lose power over you. And if the idols in your life lose power over you, you will sleep better. (laughs) And you will grow in your faith in Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I'll say this. Have no other gods before you. See the idols behind every desire, over-desire that you have for what they are. Reject them. Rebuke them. Walk away from them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, then others, and then watch the Holy Spirit lead you to a life of flourishing that you have never experienced before. Amen? Pray with me, would you?